Morning, church. Good morning. Today's text we, we, uh, that we're going to be uh, hearing is in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 12. And as always, the Lord is honored when we stand as we hear his word read. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 12. And the word reads, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what would I what what would for what I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The, com- the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, as we are gathered here today, Lord, to worship and praise you, Lord. Uh, As we've heard, Lord, during our worship of song, Lord, we get to worship you. It is an honor, it is a privilege, and although in many places in the world it is illegal, Lord, it is uh, your glory and and your uh, being that must be glorified, Lord, for even creation, Lord, sings and, and, and identifies you, Lord. And, and recognizes you. And we too, Lord, being your creatures, Lord, being your children, must give glory unto your name, Lord. We thank you, Lord, because this is not uh, something that we take for granted, Lord. Your revelation, the fact that you are, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us is an honor, it is a privilege, and it is a gracious act on your part. So is your law as well, Lord. It is not a sin, it is not something to hate or it's something to abhor, Lord, but it is something to delight in, something to take pleasure in, Lord, as we look at your standard, as we look at your word, Lord, and see you and recognize you and know, Lord, that you have called us to be holy as you are holy. We don't take upon this as some uh, mundane task to do, but something that we should delight in. And so we glory, Lord, in, in, in the fact that you have called us, Lord, to delight in this task, that you have changed our heart to do so, and that in the midst of pursuing you, Lord, we get to be filled all the more with your presence. We thank you, Lord, this unmistakable and un, un, unbelievable privilege, and we ask, Lord, that as we uh, prepare to hear your word preached, Lord, that we may do so with open ears and open hearts, Lord, knowing Lord, this is the very task that you have called us to do, that we might worship you, Lord, in our hearing of the word. We thank you, Lord, for this honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Have you ever heard of uh, Marshall Matt Dillon or uh, Marshall... Wyatt Earp. Uh, If you're 
older, you've probably heard of them. You know, if either of them would walk into a saloon at some point in their television shows, you are pretty certain that within a few moments, some kind of a a gunfight was going to break out. Now, of course, that's what made the show worth watching, those exciting parts. But do you think that it was the fault of the lawmen walking in there? Did, did, did they go in there, and is that what caused the problem? The answer is no. The problem was already there. Whatever the evil was that was already going on, and they came into that situation and somehow it came out into the open, whatever was happening. And those individuals who were causing whatever problem it was, they realized at that point that the jig was up, that, uh, that, that they had been caught, and they had either a choice of getting hung or of spending a long time in jail or fighting it out with a marshal. And of course, since... The marshals were the good guys. The bad guys always lost. And that's how the law, in a sense, is supposed to work. But what happens when the law has no marshal to back it up, no policeman to come to the rescue? Well, we caught a glimpse of that, didn't we, in Seattle, Washington in the last couple of weeks, where a couple teenagers, a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, were shot in uh, that uh, area that had been cordoned off. But the police weren't allowed to go in to save their lives, and both of those young men died. The law said that murder was wrong, but the lack of the lawman to follow it up meant that evil grew instead. You know, the same thing has happened here to a certain extent in New York City, over the past month, in the first three weeks of June, as the police have backed off from their policing, there have been 125 shootings in New York City. In Minneapolis, which is a much smaller uh, city than New York, there's been 111 in the first three weeks of June. And in Chicago, in just one weekend in Chicago, Over 100 people were shot. In our text today, the Apostle Paul identifies two individuals, or two partners, I should say, in crime. One is an unwilling accomplice, and the other is the evil mastermind. He shows the role of the law in terms of sin and evil as it destroys a person, and then the role of the evil mastermind of sin, as it uses its accomplice, the law, in order to bring out greater sin. You see, the point that Paul is making here, and that he continues to make as we study the seventh chapter of Romans, is that anyone who thinks that they can somehow, by following the law and living the law, that they can do good, those individuals are fools. The law 
can tell you what is wrong, but the law cannot make you do right. And so as our theme from this passage states, the good law and evil sin combine to destroy the good life. The good law, the law is good, Paul asserts throughout this passage. The law is good, it's righteous, it's holy. The good law and evil sin, the sin that is in the depths and the core of our being, combine together to destroy the good life of those who want to live good but find that they cannot. You know, the other night, uh, we were having spaghetti for dinner, and spaghetti and sauce, or if you're a purist Italian, gravy. And uh, I happened to have on a light-colored shirt. My wife, for some reason, suggested that I should probably put an apron over that shirt. I don't know if she was saying that I'm sloppy when I eat or whatever, Nancy, don't say anything. Uh, but I, uh, I, you know, I, I agreed with her. I had this light shirt on. Why? Why should we put that apron over it? Well, simply because that red would show up. That stain of that would show up on the light-colored shirt. I don't think if I was wearing a dark-colored shirt, she would have said the same thing. Because we all know that stains stand out on those light colors. Well, Paul, in this chapter, is teaching us a similar thought, that the law reveals the stain from sin. Sin becomes noticeable when it's held up against the purity and the perfection of the law. You know, you turn down the lights in an area... And you can't see the stains on the tablecloth. You couldn't see a stain on the clothes. You can't see dust or dirt. But shine a spotlight, turn up the lights in that area, and all of a sudden, you see it all. Well, the law is God's spotlight shining on our lives and revealing the evil within. But does that make the law bad? Paul asked that question in verse 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Now, this is the third time that Paul has used that phrase, by no means. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 1, when he said, what should we go on sinning so that grace might abound? By no means. In verse 15 of of chapter 6, he asked the same question. Should we go on sinning that grace should abound? By no means. No, and now we have it again in this verse. You see, Paul wants us to understand the good nature of the law. It is good. Laws are written to prevent trouble, problems, sin, to warn us of danger. So there's nothing wrong with the law. However, the law that God gave us does a good job of pointing out The stain on every human heart. The stain of sin. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, God states, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, 
he shall live. So what is the purpose of the law? Is the purpose of the law to make us feel bad, to, to make us sinners? No, the purpose of the law is so that we might live if we follow that law. It wasn't designed to entrap us. It wasn't designed to ruin our lives. It was given for the good of God's people to show the way of life. But sin is in control of the heart. Sin rules. As the scripture says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So let's take a moment and consider what are the benefits if we did follow the law? Just think about that. Let's just look at the Ten Commandments and just some of the benefits of that. What would accrue to the human race if every human being kept those Ten Commandments? Well, first of all, if we kept the first commandment, churches would be full because people would want to be together to worship God. Have no other gods before me. Worship me and worship me alone. And everyone would join together and the church is excited to worship God. For the second commandment, no one would have any secret sins because we would have no idols, making nothing an idol in our lives. So there wouldn't be any secret sin to become idols in people's lives. And then the third commandment, We should not bear the name of the Lord our God in vain. People understood that they were bearing God's name, that by the name of of Christian, that they were showcasing the glory of Jesus Christ, bearing God's name on themselves, then they would live their lives to show his glory. Everything that they would do would be done to magnify him. And as people understood that they were to bear his name, there would be no crime, no fighting, no arguing. Because people live for God's glory, they would keep the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. They would find rest for their body, and that would eliminate all kinds of accidents that happen because people are tired. They would also eat well because they would know that their temples are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, every day will become a Sabbath day unto the Lord, a day of resting in Him. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Can you imagine the homes? What would happen if in every home the parents lived in such an honorable way that their children would honor them in everything that they do? There would be no fighting in the home, no arguing, no contention. Living in a perfect atmosphere, providing peace and blessing in that home. And the same would be true of relationships between employers and employees, between citizens and their government. In every other human relationship, everyone would treat one another with respect and honor. What about you shall not murder Well, there wouldn't be any anger, bitterness, slander, racism, and all the other issues that cause people to rise up against others. Instead, we would love one another, caring about one another, giving love to all other people. 
And then there's the next commandment. You shall not steal. No one would go hungry. Because instead of stealing, we would do, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, instead of stealing, we would give. Understanding that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. The Eighth Commandment, dealing with committing adultery. Prostitution, sex slavery, pornography, sleeping around, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, and all the rest would disappear from the world. It would be gone. Why? Because we would understand the beauty of God's created order in marriage rather than committing adultery and having those sexual sins. And then the next commandment, don't bear false witness. There would be no need for judges, no need for courts. Every individual would take personal responsibility for their treating of other people. No bearing of false witness, no exaggerations, no lying, no manipulation of other people. As we love our neighbor, as we love ourselves. And then the last commandment, just think there would be no TV ads. Why? Because nobody would be jealous, nobody would be envious, and nobody would be coveting. Everybody would want to help others and do for others rather than get this for me, you deserve it. What a change would happen in this world. You see why the law is good? Why he says it's holy and righteous? But unfortunately, we need the law. Why? Because no one in themselves could possibly live out that kind of life. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sin reigns in the human heart without Jesus Christ. So when the light of the law shines on that heart, shows the deep stains of the wickedness within, no wonder such sinners cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Well, we can tell you one thing that will not deliver you. The good law and evil sin will combine to destroy your good life. But not only does the law reveal the stain of sin, we know that the law reveals the seriousness of sin. Sin is a serious business. Have you ever tried to, to help someone and found out that instead of helping them, you actually made the problem worse than it was? I've done that many times, but uh, let me just give you one illustration. When I was pastoring in, in uh, the church outside of Philadelphia, before I came to pastor here, uh, one day in the middle of winter, I walked into the furnace room, and there was a small window there, and all I had was a screen, and, and this cold blast of air was just blowing in that window. And so I decided that, you know, we needed to do something about that, and I went, and I got plastic, and I covered that window. And I felt pretty good about myself until our custodian walked into the office like a day later or so, and he goes, some idiot covered up the air vent that was, you know, for the furnace, and you know, they could have caused all kinds of problems. We had carbon monoxide all the way through here because the furnace would malfunction not having proper air. Oops. 
I thought I was doing something good, but it turned out to be something evil. Unfortunately, no one always knows what they are doing is right or wrong. How was I supposed to know that blocking that air vent might have killed the whole congregation with carbon monoxide. What I didn't know was dangerous, even though I didn't know it. Just because someone does not know the law does not mean that what they do is harmless, and that's what Paul writes here in verse 7. He says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, Paul isn't saying that, you know, the person doesn't know or doesn't covet. He just doesn't know that that's what it's called. The sinful heart covets. But if you don't have a term for it, you just think that's the way that life is supposed to be. A few years ago, a little girl was dragged into the water in Florida by an alligator at a resort uh, area. and killed. Along the side of the water, there were these little signs, pretty little signs, that said, danger, possibility of alligators. But they were nice little signs, you know, stuck here and there, and nobody really paid attention to them. You know what the result of that girl being dragged into the water was? They made bigger signs. It didn't help the girl. There there was no Tarzan, there was no crocodile Dundee to jump into the water and to wrestle that alligator and save her life. The sign was there. The law was there. But it didn't save her. You see, the signs like the law can warn of danger, but they can't protect from that danger. Sin has serious consequences in our lives. The law warns us about those consequences, but it has no power to help us stay away from those consequences. Without Jesus Christ, there is no possibility of defeating sin's power, we are helpless. Why? Because the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are as helpless against the power of sin as that poor little girl was against that large alligator. You know, New York City has its own stories of fools that make dangerous creatures their pets. A couple years ago, here in Manhattan... Mr. Williams was crushed to death by his 13-foot python that he kept in his apartment in Manhattan. Sixty-five people in the United States were attacked by some kind of a constrictor snake that they owned that were from 8 feet to 16 feet long, their own pets, and 17 of them were actually crushed to death in 2012. 
And it's not just constrictor snakes. We've read the stories of tigers and lions and alligators and other creatures, poisonous snakes, that people have kept as pets, and those pets have turned on them. But even more serious is the danger that sin brings to us. Because sin doesn't just bring physical death. Sin brings eternal damnation. The human heart faces that deadlier pet, sin. No matter how large the sign that warns, no matter how much the law says this is wrong, what will sinners do but sin? Few people are unaware, for instance, of the dangers of smoking. And yet, whether it's smoking or drugs or pornography, taking drinks from strangers, any of those kind of things, hundreds of thousands of people every year die because they participated in those things. How true then is the cry of the individual's heart, that person who is under the law and knows the presence of the law, when they cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? How tragic that the good law, which should be there to deliver, the good law and evil sin combine to destroy a good life. But why? Why? If the law reveals the stain of sin and it shows us its seriousness, why do those who are under the law continue to sin? Well, if they read the law properly, they would come to know. Notice that the law reveals the source of sin. Do you know what the source of sin is? The source of sin is sin. Oh, wait a minute. I I don't want to confuse you there. But the source of sin is sin. The, The Bible uses the word sin in two different ways. The normal meaning when we talk about sin, we're really talking about sins. We're talking about the actions or the thoughts or the words that we speak that are contrary to God's ways. Those are sins. It's what we do that we know we shouldn't do or don't do that we know that we should do. You name it, as human beings, we end up doing what is wrong. It is evil, lust, covetous thoughts, rebellious actions, slanderous talk, religious pride, so much more that wells up from our evil hearts. And we call those things sins. But the Bible also talks about sin in the singular, as it does here in this passage. Sin as the controlling factor within that wicked heart that causes us to commit sins. Just as spider bite and Spider-Man causes him to be able to do the things that a spider does, or the DNA of Bruce Banner causes him to turn into the Hulk, so the heart that is controlled by sin 
leads to sinful actions, which is where that saying comes from that you've been hearing over the past uh, several months. What do you expect sinners to do but sin? And that's how Paul describes it for us here in verses 8 and 9. He says, but sin, singular, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of sins. That is, covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Sin caused the sinner to sin, and the law was powerless to stop it. In the book and then the movies that came out of that book, The Hobbit, uh, there is a, a, uh, it's a story of these dwarves that are going to take back their mountain that had been uh, taken from them by a dragon, a large, evil dragon. And when they arrive at this mountain, after all their other adventures, they come to this mountain, and there's a chance, they think, that the dragon might be dead. Nobody has seen the dragon for a long time. But they're not sure, so they send in their little hobbit friend in to find out, you know, is the dragon in there? And and, and what's it look like in there? And so he goes in, and what's he do? He wakes up the dragon. The dragon was there. The dragon was alive. The dragon was still its evil self. But it had been kind of quiet and slumbering. He wakes it up, and what's it do? It goes out to kill and destroy. Well, Paul says that sin is like that. It's present, and it's controlling, but it's not always seen that way until the law comes along. And the law, like the hobbit, wakes it up. We realize what sin is in us. The law awakens sin, and that sets about to destroy our lives. A person who is under the law becomes aware of the dragon of sin in their lives, but they are helpless to stop it. A sinner caught in the power of the dragon's woe cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? But there is no one there. Because we know that the good law that should help us has no power to. The good law and evil sin combine to destroy the good life for us. And in the end, The person seeking to find righteousness under the law finds themselves hopeless, helpless, because notice that the law reveals the seduction of sin. The seduction of sin. You see, for the longest time, individuals under this way of drugs or alcohol or cigarettes believe that they are in control of their addiction. They will tell you, I can quit whenever I want to until that day that they try to quit. Until that day that they 
somehow are convinced that maybe this is not good for me. The law, in a sense, comes to them and they say, you know what, I need to stop. And then they find out that they are not in control of the addiction. The addiction is in control of them. Well, Paul writes what we see here, that sin is that greatest addiction. Sin is the master over us. Sin controls us. Before the lawsuits came out that showed that cigarette companies were purposefully putting nicotine in to make addicts of smokers, people smoked. They smoked for enjoyment. And then along comes the law. And the law says you need to tell people what you're doing. You need to tell people that you're putting that nicotine in there. And you need to warn them about the dangers of what you're doing. And people, they began to understand what the problem was. But they still kept on smoking. Why? The law told them it was bad for them. But they were under its control. What was the difference between those two things? Well, under the first situation, they smoked. They smoked for enjoyment. If they tried to quit, and they couldn't quit, it was no big deal. But once they knew, now their lives were miserable. They wanted to quit. They knew it was bad for them, but they couldn't. They were under its control. Certain sin is worse than than an addiction in our lives. It is like a mutating virus. Kill it in one area and it's going to pop up in someplace else. The person who stops smoking starts overeating. The alcoholic leaves the alcoholism behind and ends up in pornography. All sin does is morph into some other area but it continues to always control. It's like a changeling able to infiltrate the heart in many different areas and therefore to make it its slave. And each time that it changes its shape, it seduces the heart even more. For Eve, in the Garden of Eden, it was a beautiful piece of fruit. For Cain, it was... I want to be accepted by God. For Pharaoh, I want to be God. For David's son Amnon, it was his half-brother's beautiful sister and his lust for her. You see, sin can take any form. It can be pride. It can be religiosity. It can be bitterness and unforgiveness. It can be lust. It can be laziness. Sin can take on all kinds of different forms. It lies deep in the heart until something triggers it. David looking over the wall and seeing a woman bathing. Peter and Barnabas letting their Jewish pride come out when those from Jerusalem came to Antioch. Achan, he saw some nice clothes and and, and money lying around after the walls of Jericho had 
tumbled down, and he took them. Ananias and Sapphira simply wanted to be liked by the people in the church, and so they lied to the Holy Spirit. Paul in verses 10 and 11 tells us of the individuals and their attempts to live under the law. He says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. The me in this this passage is not Paul talking about his life, but the me of anyone living under the law, trying to please God and finding impossible the ability to live a godly life. It's important to see that not once in this whole passage is the Holy Spirit mentioned. After we get past verse 6, which is an introduction to the thought, nothing about the Holy Spirit, nothing about Jesus Christ, until we get to that final word in verse 25 that God has given us in Christ, the only thing that can deliver us. Jesus Christ alone. It's important to see then that this passage is talking about a human being given the law, but finding the law has no power to help them against sin. He's describing a person where the law understands the possibility of life in righteousness, but the powerlessness to attain it. They're seduced by sin and dragged down into eternal damnation. And that is why they cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Do you see now why it is that the good law combines together with evil sin to destroy the good life? Chapter 7 of Romans is a very sad chapter. The law has shown us what the possibility is of doing good, how to remain spiritually healthy, how to honor God and glorify Him. It's painted as the glorious picture of the possibility of life. But between the person under the law and this picture of perfection, is a chain of slavery, a spiritual wall of barbed wire, an ocean of sin filled with sharks. And all you can do is look across at what is promised and cry out, who will deliver me? Sin captured the heart of the sinner. The law, it just mocks you with possibility, with no hope holding out the rabbit for the greyhound to chase, but never to be able to catch, no matter how hard it tries. Nor will the sinner ever be freed from sin. No matter how many self-help books are read, no matter how many movies are watched, no matter how many sermons are listened to, they know the truth of verse 12. And so the law is holy, and the commandment, is holy and righteous and good, but they are not. Sin, like a cancerous tumor, has wrapped itself around them. 
and there is no one to deliver them. No attempt by man can ever free them from its power. And so the good law and evil sin combined to steal from us that possibility of the good life. But the law does offer hope. For the reason the law is holy and righteous and good is because of the lawgiver. The lawgiver is the one who is holy and righteous and good. And the lawgiver alone is the one who can wrestle that alligator of sin, who can put to death the python of sin that has you so wrapped up and is strangling your life. It's the only thing that can remove that dark stain of sin that has covered your whole being. And when the person who has come to their senses and they see their attempts of self-righteousness is not able to deliver them, they cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the law points to the one answer. The only answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer to the problem of both sin and sins. Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, has paid the penalty for our sins so that God can remove every stain of that sin away from us. So that God can work in us to give us this life that has been promised through Jesus Christ our Lord. And for those of you who are Christians today, you have the opportunity to say, thanks be to God. Thank you, God, for what you have worked in me through Jesus Christ. That sin no longer has to control me. It no longer has to force me to live underneath its dictates. Sin forgiven. And the glory and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you to clean out the effects of sin and to give you a life that is holy and righteous. For those of you who still believe that you have to clean yourself up, that you have to somehow make yourself good enough for God to accept you, that you have to follow the law, I pray that today your eyes would be open to see just how helpless you are under the law. It cannot help. It can only point out what is wrong. It cannot do anything for you. And I pray that you would today turn to Christ that you would call out to him, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Jesus, you alone. You alone can take my heart. Give me that heart transplant. Impart into that heart the love for your law and the ability to keep that law. Will you do that today? Will you call on him? Asking him to deliver you and to give you that new life that he promises. And so I ask you in conclusion, 
Have you relied upon your own attempts to try to be good enough to be accepted by God? Good enough to get into heaven. Maybe I can make it. If you have done that, the truth is you have not looked very deeply into your own heart. You have not seen the depth of sin that is there and that the only deliverance is by faith in Jesus Christ who can tear that dragon apart and put it to death so that you can live. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, there may be some, whether in this room today or some watching online, who know the struggle because they have been trying to please you. They've been trying to do good things, and they've found themselves incapable. And now they know why. No matter how much they are told, do this and live, they find themselves controlled by a nature of sin so deep that they can do nothing except follow its dictates. Oh, Lord God, open their eyes to see that there is only one who can come and deliver them. Only one that can destroy the the power of the dragon, Satan, and sin. Only one who can remove the stain, can overcome the seriousness of sin. The only one who can show us how seductive sin is, but can give us something that is more powerful than that seduction. The power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. May they call out to you today, woe is me. Who will deliver me? And to hear you say in their heart, Jesus Christ, he will deliver you if you will trust in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.